What is the perfect story? Does it exist? Is there a tangible formula? Has the perfect story ever been told? And if so, are we simply trying to retell the story over and over? This podcast is called The Midnight Myth, and somewhere between the black of night and the break of dawn, there is a story, and it's perfect. My name is Derek Jones. And my name is Laurel Hostack. Welcome to The Midnight Myth. Welcome back to the Midnight Myth, everybody's favorite history, mythology, philosophy, pop culture podcast. I am, I am so very, very excited to be here. One, I hope everyone listening, wherever you are in the world, is safe, is healthy. If you're not feeling well, is quarantined because you know there is a global pandemic happening. But you're not here to talk about global pandemics, are you, Laurel? Um, well, I, I am a little bit. It definitely will come up in my notes tonight, but not uh, not this one in particular. I do uh, also want to just echo your thoughts. I hope wherever you're listening, you're safe, you're healthy, you are doing whatever it takes to stay sane in this very, very weird time to be alive. Uh, we're with you here at The Midnight Myth, and we've got lots of episodes to keep you entertained while you're potentially quarantined, and we love you. Definitely. But that's not why I'm excited to be here tonight. I'm excited because there's been another season of one of, if not my all-time favorite TV shows, Doctor Who. And we are here to talk about our Doctor Who um, sort of recap. We want to dive deep into one particular episode of the latest season. It was season 12, it is the second season with current showrunner Chris Chibnall, and also the second season with Chris Chibnall's doctor, um, played by the wonderful, I'm blanking actually on her name. Jodie Whittaker. Thank you so much. I was like, Jodie, Jodie, but thank you, Jodie Whittaker. Um, The season has ended. Spoiler wall will be up. We will be spoiling pretty much everything and anything in season 12. However, we're going to be focusing on one particular episode. That is episode eight. The Haunting of Villa Diodati. Thank you. I wanted you to say it because I really can't say it without stuttering or making it sound stupid. So thank you, Laurel. That's fine. Um, So yeah, spoiler wall is up for that. I'm really excited to talk all things Doctor Who. I've got a lot to say about this season. In particular, I've got a lot to say about this episode. It's the eighth episode And it sets up the season finale where um, it stops being singular episodes and it starts being a sequence of episodes that lead to the end of season 12. And it's where we really see some very striking and interesting new moments, both thematically, mythologically for the character, the Doctor. And I couldn't be more excited to talk about it. 
How are you feeling, Laurel? I'm feeling great. Uh, this particular episode, uh, for me, was just a joy to watch because it talks about some things I'm really interested in personally. But I also thought it was a really amazing keystone for this season as a whole uh, in how it harped on some of the themes that this season has been setting up. It developed the character of the Doctor in a way that I think is really unique to Jodie Whittaker's take. Uh, and it's one that I'll go back and watch again and again and again that I'll add to my rotation of some of my favorite episodes of Doctor Who. So I'm very excited to talk about it. I think there's a lot. It's really rich for our conversations especially. Yeah, in general, it was not my favorite season of Doctor Who. Yeah. But I'm not here to talk about the negatives. I'm here to celebrate the history, mythology, and philosophy within the show. Before we roll up our sleeves and get too busy into work, Laurel, do your thing. Well, there is a lot going on here at the Midnight Myth. The world keeps turning. Uh, we are still working our way through The Lord of the Rings by J.R.R. Tolkien. And we're so grateful to everyone who has listened and given us such great feedback on the episodes so far. So we have four episodes out now covering The Fellowship of the Ring and The Two Towers, uh, two episodes for each book. And we will be back very soon with Return of the King to round out that series and our discussions on it. As we continue to reread uh, The Lord of the Rings, we are also doing a giveaway uh, that is Lord of the Rings themed. So we're giving away two Funko Pops. We're giving away a Sam Gamgee and Frodo Baggins uh, Funko Pop pair, along with a set of Lord of the Rings Trivial Pursuit and some Midnight Myth merch to one lucky listener. Now, if you want to enter that giveaway, you still have time. We are going to draw the winner uh, on the podcast when we cover Lord, uh, when we cover Return of the King. So head to our Twitter and look for the pinned tweet at the top of our page. We are at the Midnight Myth and follow the instructions on that tweet in order to enter the giveaway. Uh, we hope that you will throw your hat in the ring so that you can get this awesome gift basket. And we're really excited about it. So make sure you tune into those episodes in the future. Otherwise, uh, follow us on that Twitter so you can stay tuned for all the uh, amazing updates that we're putting out for you. You can also follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Midnight Myth Podcast. Uh, and you can head to our website, midnightmyth.com, for all kinds of other things like our Patreon and our merch store, which are ways you can support us monetarily. You can find blogs there for extra content. And if you can't open your wallets to us, you can at least open your hearts to us. If you enjoy the show uh, and you want other people to be able to find it, then the best thing you can do for us is leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. So please consider leaving us five stars and telling people why you love the show. Wonderful. On with the show. Shall we do a brief recap? We're not going to recap all of season 12 but let's at least recap the episode uh, episode eight that we're going to focus heavily on tonight. Is that okay with you? I would love that. Go ahead. So episode eight opens up with a few famous characters from especially literary and British history, including Lord Byron, who is a famous romantic poet, as well as Mary Shelley, who wrote the very famous gothic horror book, Frankenstein. And it's on the amazing night where they challenged each other to ghost stories in which Mary Shelley was inspired to write the famous book Frankenstein. The doctor and her three companions crash this party, and instantly they realize something is up. Notably, Percy Shelley, who is the lover and soon-to-be husband of Mary Shelley, 
was supposed to be there and is not. And the doctor is getting a foreboding sense of evil, using her sonic screwdriver, trying to figure out what's going on and her mind being clouded. Things get really, really wonky as Graham tries to find the laboratory and realizes that the house is a series of bizarre riddles that he finds himself walking in loops, unable to find the place to use the bathroom. This problem gets worse when a ghost hand, a skeleton hand, comes into the party and starts to strangle uh, Ryan and almost kills him. We now get a sense that the characters are living in some sort of a haunted house style scenario where the house is folding in dimensionally, where up becomes down and down becomes up and nobody can leave. As they split up trying to find um, Mary Shelley's baby, they find that they are trapped in these loops. Ultimately, this leads them into the basement where they find Percy Shelley hiding in the basement who had been responsible for some of the weird phenomenon such as uh, you know, vase flying against the wall and shattering. He was um, hidden from sight after picking out a piece of silver metal from a pond. This is also when we see a sort of specter time travel traveler who turns out to be the lone Cyberman, a Cyberman who possesses some rather poetic abilities for he knows Percy Shelley's work and part of his face is exposed and he is hunting for the guardian, which turns out to be Percy Shelley. That silver thing he picked out of the water is something called the um, Siberium. Siberium. Thank you very much. Which is a living AI computer that contains all Cyberman knowledge. The Guardian wants this. The Siberium is pretty happy staying in Percy Shelley. And Percy Shelley is using the AI of the Siberium to create the haunted house interdimensional weirdness of moving through the house to protect himself. In this, Ryan suggests that we let the Siberium kill Percy Shelley because we are not supposed to give the lone Cyberman what he wants. A callback to an earlier episode when a fan favorite and past Doctor Who character, Captain um, Jack Harkness, Captain Jack comes back and warns the Doctor, whatever you do, don't give the lone Cyberman what he wants. In this, the Doctor ultimately decides to save Percy Shelley's life, extract the Siberium, give it to the lone Cyberman who then disappears, presumably to the future with it, The doctor realizing now that was part one of the plan, which was save Percy Shelley. Part two is travel to the future and stop the Cybermen from rekindling a cyber race, which will extinguish all biological life in the universe. Whoo, amazing recap of an amazing episode. A lot happened in there, and I think you did very, very well. Thank you very much. I really appreciate that. In terms of analysis, there's a lot of ways that we can go on this particular episode. One of the things I love the most about the contained Doctor Who episodes is that it permits the writers to be multi-genred. It's not always a sci-fi show. Sometimes it's a historical fiction. Sometimes it's a romantic drama. Sometimes it's science fiction. And in this one, I feel like they're playing with the haunted house, or should I say the horror genre. And how fitting it is that when they dive into the horror genre this season, that we have some of the creators of gothic horror literature in a contemporary and modern sense. So I kind of want to begin there. 
if that's okay with you. Oh, absolutely. Derek wants to start with gothic horror. Yes, sign me up. Let's talk a little bit about who these characters are in our actual history and why they're used in this episode. What do you think? I would love that. You know, you just said something about how Doctor Who gets the opportunity to play with genre and to uh, sort of merge and intersect uh, sci-fi with other genres like horror in some of these standalone episodes and how fitting it is, is it for these characters to be part of it? And for me, uh, the reason they go there is because the doctor wants to see the genesis of Frankenstein, the novel by Mary Shelley. And Frankenstein, as a piece of art, was conceived by Mary Shelley as a philosophical romance. It was the marriage of the romantic ideals, romantic style, high psychological, uh, imaginative storytelling with natural philosophy, with technology, with questions about uh, human responsibility when it comes to industrialization. So it's absolutely the perfect uh, marriage of two pieces of art, Doctor Who and Frankenstein, that really, really excites me. Yeah, I mean, you threw a lot of big things out there, yeah. and I love that. Backing it up, the the period in time in which we are seeing Mary Shelley, Lord Byron, and these characters write, it's largely considered the Romantic period. Yes, these are the later Romantics, yes. Yes, in Western European academic, artistic um, worlds, we had seen a movement called the Enlightenment. And the Enlightenment is what gave us the American Revolution, the French Revolution. It gave us natural philosophy, which became science as we know it today. And it, it was the building blocks for the world that we live in now, intellectually and artistically. And in that Enlightenment period, there were things like classical music, which is very analytical, it's very academic. And along come these romantics that are just like, thank you, Enlightenment, for, you know, giving us things like free commerce, access to markets, social democracy, mobility, yeah. this little thing called democracy. I've heard of it. You know, like, yeah, thank you for doing all that. But, you know, you've kind of robbed us of an essential part of the human condition, which is feeling and thinking and passion and all of these raw human emotions that still defied ex um, explanation in these, you know, um, enlightenment models that really happened out of the 17th and 18th centuries. Now we're in the 19th century and people are like, you know what? I want to paint because painting makes me feel good. You know, I want to go out there and I want to write a poem because I want to explore something that we don't know. Thank you for everything that we do know, but you've left out this romantic sense of what it means to be alive in this moment. And hence there is this romantic movement that, that Mary Shelley, Percy Shelley, Lord Byron, three main characters in this show are kind of um, brought out of and a part of. Absolutely. Very, very well said. So uh, you wanted to talk a little bit about these figures. I would love to do that. Um, Mary Shelley is definitely the um, the character who is the, the focal point for the doctor in um, pursuing this adventure. And I think she's one of the most fascinating figures in all of literature. But I also want to spend quite a bit of time with Lord Byron in this episode because we haven't gotten a whole lot of opportunities to talk about him on the podcast and he is just uh, just the bad boy of literature, the original rock star, one of the most interesting people to study 
because he was a rake and a libertine and a, you know, a famous poet and a sex symbol and also the absolute worst in every way. And I think uh, there are a lot of parallels set up between him and the doctor in this that are kind of unexpected at the start of the episode, but that uh, close it out with quite a bit of poignancy. So I want to definitely spend some time with Lord Byron. Great. Let's get a little Byronic. Yeah, let's get Byronic. Uh, so the reason that I think that these comparisons are going to be useful, I'm just going to refer to the episode a couple of times here. Um, there is a scene early in the episode after the fam has arrived and they are um, spending some time with these characters who are Lord Byron, Mary Shelley, Dr. Polidori, and Claire Claremont, who is the stepsister of Mary Shelley and is in a relationship with Byron. Uh, Yaz comes upon Claire trying to break into Byron's study, uh, and she's looking for letters. She's looking to find out if there are any letters where she's mentioned so that she can figure out what Byron's true feelings toward her are. She and Yaz wind up having a heart-to-heart where Claire explains uh, that she's attracted to Byron because he's an enigma, because he's got this mysterious allure, and Yaz confides in Claire that she has someone in her life who's similar who's mysterious, who she doesn't know a lot about, but she's drawn to this person anyway. And we're led to believe that that person is the doctor. And I think that this is confirmed in the next scene when we see Byron and the doctor sharing a scene alone together. Uh, It starts with Byron saying, she walks in beauty like the night, and the doctor finishing his sentence, his poetic sentence, of cloudless climes and starless skies. So they are connected by this conversation before, and then we go into a room where they literally can quote poetry at each other. Uh, And while Lord Byron is definitely pursuing her sexually, I think he also notices that there is something in her uh, that is similar to him. So who was Lord Byron? I called him the original bad boy of literature uh, and the literary rock star. And that's really what he was. A lot of people will cite him as the first celebrity. Uh, And the reason that this happened, the reason that he became so famous and so uniquely famous was that in his writing, in his poetry, he would insert a character who was a romanticized avatar of himself. Uh, So this was Child Harold in Child Harold's Pilgrimage, who was going on the grand tour, much like Byron was, writing this great travel poem as he muses on his own psychology and his vague, unexplained remorse for something wrong uh, that happened in his past. Uh, These characters would always be very sexy, very appealing, very mysterious, uh, and have a darkness and a past that they can't quite escape. This figure became known as the Byronic hero, and it became inextricably tied to Byron the man. He was one of the first people to actually put his picture, his illustration, on his books of poetry so that when you read his poetry and you read about Harold or you read about Don Juan, you were reading about Byron and you knew what he looked like uh, and you were able to associate him with this character. Uh, And the Byronic hero became a foundational figure for romantic literature. Think of Heathcliff. uh, Think of so many other of these solitary, uh, dark, handsome, mysterious men. Seriously, when you said Heathcliff, I went to the comic? Oh, yeah. (laughs) Or Batman. You can think Batman, too. But I was talking Wuthering Heights. Um, But that's a a good call out there. So why am I relating him to the doctor? Uh, I think that... 
when I describe the Byronic hero, you don't necessarily think of Matt Smith. You don't necessarily think of even the Peter Capaldi doctor. Um, but I think what they're creating in Jodie Whittaker's doctor, at least in this season with the changes that they've made to her character, uh, align with the Byronic hero in an interesting way. And I think, honestly, David Tennant's doctor did too. Uh, it was a character who wants to be close to other human beings, maybe has some amount of silliness, can laugh at themselves, but also has a deep well of mysterious anger uh, and a deep well of mysterious emotion that they're unable to share with their fam. They're unable to share with their companion because nobody else would truly understand it, which leads to this isolation, which leads to this continued appeal and allure of this character. Yeah, and I think one of the hallmarks of the Chibnall, um, Jodie Whittaker, Doctor Who run is that unlike in previous Doctor Who companion relationships, one, the Doctor doesn't have a companion but three, and two, the Doctor is not forthcoming with her past. She's very withholding. As much as, you know, it is in other seasons. So Rose and... Um, Martha... And Martha, I'm sorry, but Rose and um, Christopher Eccleston. Oh, yeah, yeah. Christopher Eccleston shares in the beginning in the 2005 series that rebooted Doctor Who, which is the shadow of all the Doctor Who. That's the rebirth of Doctor Who as we know it in the modern sense. Um, shares quite early his war with the Daleks and the fact that all of Gallifrey was destroyed by his hand. And Rose is there to witness this. You know... Th the current companions don't know anything about the Doctor. They don't know anything about the Regeneration. They don't know anything about Gallifrey. They don't know anything about the Daleks, the Weeping Angels. The Doctor has compartmentalized and held her past away from the companions. At a few points in this season, Ryan even goes, what do we really know about the Doctor? Should we be trusting the Doctor? Right, yeah. And we see that... In this episode, both Lord Byron and the Doctor are pretty much, you know, playing off of each other for a bulk of the action of this episode, and they are both elusive figures. They are both magnanimous figures that surround themselves with people who that just want to dote affection yeah. and adulation on them because they're so brilliant and they're so accomplished, but they are still a step removed from a true, like, human empathetic connection towards those that they are with. Yeah, absolutely. You know, Byron in this episode uh, admits that he has brought a skeleton from the 15th century in his luggage, something that he packed up while he was traveling through Albania. Uh, and he thinks that's why all of these hauntings are happening. Uh, but it just goes to show once again that Byron, you know, has maybe more of a connection with an empty skull musing on treading on the dust of empires than he might have with Claire, who's his sexual partner, who is also uh, pregnant by him at this moment in history. So uh, a very interesting uh, comparison there. He says, a reminder that we tread on the dust of empires. Crops now grow where blood was spilt. An innocent fascination, I assure you. Which is, yeah, that's all wrapped up in, in Child Harold's pilgrimage. That's a huge part of his poetry. It's beautiful. And in certain respects, it draws on a sort of romantic, poetic um, sentiment on history, one that I commonly connect with and share. 
and the idea that the place where that we live and sleep could have been a place that meant literal life and death to our forefathers and foremothers, that they battled for the control over something in this very spot and in these very times, that the wars that were waged of the past never truly leave us, even if crops now grow where blood was spilt, almost as if the blood itself is the fertilizer. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's amazing. Um, the last piece of evidence that I will throw out just to drive home these comparisons between Byron and the doctor is that, uh, once again, while Mary Shelley's Frankenstein is why they're here, they're here to witness the, uh, the conception of Frankenstein. It's not a quote from Frankenstein that closes out the episode. It's a quote from darkness by Lord Byron, uh, which was also inspired by this trip to Geneva during the year without a summer, um, where he wrote this apocalyptic poem about what it was like to live in uh, a time when the sun was kind of blotted out by volcanic ash. Uh, and the last couple of lines say, darkness had no need of aid from them. She was the universe, as it superimposes his words over the doctor's face, saying she is darkness and she is the universe. She needs no one else but herself because she's everything. Because, you know, sometimes this team structure isn't flat. It's mountainous with me at the summit in the stratosphere alone left to choose. Oh, that was one of my favorite quotes from the episode. It really was. And that's where this version of the doctor really crystallizes for me. When she finally lashes out, this is when, uh, you know, Ryan is saying, well, one life, Percy Shelley's life is not the same as billions of lives. We have to sacrifice uh, Percy Shelley so that we can save the future. And the doctor lashes out thinking, uh, you know, you feel like you can make that choice, but I'm the one who has to make this choice. And I'm the one who has to weigh one life against billions. Uh, and she conjures up that imagery of this team being mountainous with me at the summit. I'm alone making that choice. Uh, it's a, it, it's a Byronic, it's a romantic notion. Uh, there is a, a painting that that conjured up for me uh, from the Romantic period that's actually often used as the cover uh, image of Frankenstein um, by Caspar Friedrich, I believe is the name of the painter. It's called Wanderer Above a, a Sea of Fog. I'll post it with the um, with the show notes and everything, but you've probably seen it before. It's of a lone figure uh, standing at the top of a rock uh, or a, a high mountain looking down at a sea of mist alone. Uh, and it just conjures that incredibly um, introspective but lonely and uh, burdensome romantic notion. You know, I've done a lot of Doctor Who watching. I've watched a lot of episodes, most episodes, more than once. And we've podcasted about Doctor Who pretty frequently. We usually do one at the end of a season and we pick out an, at least one other Doctor Who episode to do within a calendar year. And this is the first time I felt compelled to bring quotes from the episode. <laughs> In all of that time, yeah. in all of the episodes we've done, this is the first time I'm like, I'm writing down this quote to bring it to the episode, and I brought two to this one. And, you know, I think you hit the nail on the head because the doctor as a time traveler, as someone who doesn't get to live within the straight arrow of time, but it's more wibbly-wobbly, she's able to say, Shelley's life is not one life. It's not just one life. If we let the Siberium destroy Shelley, 
that will set out a causal change that could change the entire course of human history because Shelley matters, because Shelley's words matter. Yeah. And she sits there and says, Ryan, you don't understand the full equation. It might seem like it's one life versus a billion. And of course, one life versus billions, it's an easy decision to make. The consequential, the consequentialist decision is easy. If yeah. you are sitting just in the moment and saying, I have one life versus billions of lives, but Doctor Who's life is not a series of moments going through one straight progression. Yeah. That she's able to see what happens if time gets rewritten. She's able to know that one one change here can make a spiraling whole different universe and one that is radically worse. So she's able to say it's not one life, it's all life. The decision right now could rewrite history as we know it and you, Ryan, would be gone. Everything would be gone. And at the end of it, she says, by the way, it's my power. You, I have the ability to remove the Siberium and only me. I am standing at the mountain in the stratosphere alone, and I have to make the decision right now. And by the way, you don't get a vote because you're not up there with me. Yeah. And I just thought that was an amazing moment. And it adds a new layer to the Doctor Who sort of mythos, if you will. And that's something that this episode does. And it is probably a little byrotic to build onto your point. Yeah. The doctor loses. Yeah. The doctor who we have been watching since 2005, get out of any and every jam imaginable has been able to see the universe being broke down to an atom and figuring out ways to rebuild it. And so that everybody lives and that there is no death the doctor who is the great warrior pacifist, a walking contradiction, a genocidal warrior who is also gentle and kind and great. And a healer, a doctor. Whose only weapon is a scientific instrument designed as a screwdriver, loses in this episode and says, sometimes I can't win. Yeah, yeah. And this is a time where the doctor loses. The doctor knows I cannot give the Siberium to the lone Cybermen, yet I cannot let Shelley die. And I have to make a decision for one of these. And no matter what I decide, I have lost. And makes a decision, makes the decision, pardon me, to give the Siberium to the lone Cybermen to save Shelley. Because at the very least, save Shelley can save the reality and the timeline that she has been living on, that her companions have been living on. And I think that is a brilliant moment for the show, one worthy of pause and reflection. What happens when the doctor loses? I want to latch on to something you were just saying about uh, causal chains and the timeline and the ripple that could be caused by the sacrifice of one life, even as it hangs in the balance against billions, because I think it's a big theme for this episode and honestly for the season as a whole, this idea of consequences, this idea of, you know, a butterfly flaps its wings and then there's a tsunami, that kind of thing. Uh, and that helps to uh, understand the context around why this gathering even happened the way that it happened. And that's to talk about the year without a summer and what it really was. Um, 1816 is 
known as the year without a summer because there were massive weather abnormalities across the world. And while this episode of Doctor Who uh, explains that by saying it's caused by uh, you know the interference of a traveler, of this lone Cyberman disturbing the electromagnetic field or whatever scientific mumbo jumbo, uh, what really happened was that in 1815, Mount Tambora in Indonesia, or at that time the Dutch West Indies, Indonesia today, erupted. It was a colossal volcanic event, one of the most devastating volcanic eruptions ever. Um, and the fallout caused global temperatures to drop uh, between a half a degree and a degree worldwide. So weather, as the doctor says in this episode, went haywire. Uh, England saw constant darkness and thunderstorms as well as Europe. Um, the disturbance caused crop failure and food shortages worldwide, uh, which led to large-scale social, economic, political, and ecological changes all over the world. Um, some scholars will actually even say that the settlement of the American West is uh, in large part due to crop shortages in New England. So people were migrating West uh, and settling uh, you know, other parts of America because there was no food and there was crazy winter uh, in the East and on the East Coast. So it's incredible. And there was just amazingly huge uh, consequences from this eruption, including uh, there was a typhus outbreak. So that's why I mentioned that we might talk about global pandemics. But at the time, in 1816, nobody knew that this was all because of this one event. Nobody knew that it was because Mount Tambora erupted half a world away that you were experiencing thunderstorms in Geneva. Why would you link those two things? It's only now uh, in the modern world uh, that we're able to look back and say, okay, here's how all of these different things were connected. Uh, here's how this social change was linked to this ecological disaster. And then there's the fact that the year without a summer is responsible for some distinctive and beloved artistic output. So if you've ever seen a painting by Joseph Mallard William Turner, which you, you probably have at some point, he painted these wild seascapes and landscapes with choppy water and these outrageously vibrant, colorful, explosive sunsets. The reason he painted those sunsets is because there was so much sulfur in the atmosphere, in the air, that the sunsets during that year were actually like crazy beautiful and vibrant. So that that feeling, that look, that sort of romantic uh, overture of nature is preserved in painting. And that summer, four romantic writers were gathered on their Swiss holiday where they thought they would be sailing and running around the countryside, but instead there were thunderstorms. So they stayed inside and they challenged each other to come up with ghost stories. So uh, again, just incredible to think about how much, how much change, how much social change, how much creativity was produced just by one uh, natural disaster, just by one event that caused this incredible ripple across the world. Yeah, that's really interesting <clears throat> that you bring that up. And I think it kind of plays upon the idea that if you let Shelley die, it's not a death. It's yeah. a large ripple event. They're here because of an event that happened a year before, hundreds if not thousands of miles away from where they are, and that brought them to this point that would birth a new literary genre, yeah. a new fiction genre, a horror genre, if you will, that 
didn't really previously exist in the way it would exist going forward and lead to things like vampire stories in the contemporary sense, the Frankenstein stories in the contemporary sense, all came out of this chance meeting of these four writers hanging out in a like perpetual dark summer. Yeah. Being like, well, let's get scary because it's scary out there. Absolutely. So yeah, it's just incredible and uh, impossible to estimate the consequences of any one decision that we make, especially when it comes to how we weigh uh, the, the value of life. Yeah. And you know, often we find ourselves uh, us current 2020 in particular, I'll reference Americans because that's where I live and have the most familiarity with, but I recognize we do have listeners all over the world. Um, it's impossible to really understate what a difference we all can and do make. And I think this episode as the weighing billions of lives in the future versus one life in the present argument, the doctor has to reconcile Though is a no-win scenario, there's no scenario that the doctor does something that doesn't result in death and destruction, saying that I'm going to preserve this life here because I can't sacrifice the causal chain that gets destroyed if I let this life die, is another way to say we all do matter, and what we put into this world matters, and that there's not a single one of us, no matter how high or low, what color or creed, what border we were born in or not born in that don't have a certain element of worth and dignity by virtue of us just being people and that we have the ability to make a huge difference and who knows what the story of humanity humanity would have or could have been if our story gets plucked out too early. And I think that's an element um, and a reflection from this where the doctor implicitly recognizes this by saying, I see the argument that I am forbidden by, you know, the future destruction to give the Siberium to the lone Cyberman. However, I will not sacrifice this one life for that. And I will give the Siberium over. Absolutely. I would love to transition at this moment to talk a little bit about some mythology, because there is a pretty uh, big, blaring Greek mythology reference in this episode that I can't really leave on the table. This modern Prometheus. Yeah, there's that. There's also the, like, a death god rising from Hades. I'm going to leave that one on the table, but modern Prometheus I'm going to have to talk a little bit about. Um, That line comes out as Mary Shelley is face-to-face with Ashad, the lone Cyberman, and she is appealing to whatever sense of humanity his, he has left in order to uh, be reunited with her husband and her, ch- her future husband and her child and uh, save his life. Uh, and she looks into his eyes and says, are you, are you one man? Are you several men? Are you a composite? And you can see her wheels turning as she's coming up with this idea based on the Cyberman for this story, this ghost story that she might tell in the future. And she calls him a modern Prometheus. This was famously the subtitle for Frankenstein. And what that refers to within the novel is Victor Frankenstein, the designer of the monster, uh, harnessing lightning and electricity in order to create artificial life, in order to grant uh, this godlike power to humanity and conquer death, conquer mortality. And that alludes to Prometheus, the titan of Greek mythology, 
who stole divine fire, stole fire from the gods in order to give it to humanity and prove their benefactor. Now, when Zeus discovered what Prometheus had done, he had Prometheus chained to the mountainside, again, mountainous with me at the summit in the stratosphere alone, chained to the mountainside where an eagle every day would come and devour his liver. His liver would grow back at the end of the day, and when the sun rose again, the eagle would come back and eat it, and it was just a perpetual, never-ending cycle of absolute hell and torture. Now, aside from this being the subtitle and this undercurrent of Frankenstein, the later romantics, Byron and Shelley, Percy Shelley, were also really taken with this myth. At the same time as Mary Shelley is writing Frankenstein, the modern Prometheus, Percy Shelley is writing his lyrical drama, Prometheus Unbound, which is based on Aeschylus's Greek drama, Prometheus Bound. And Byron eventually writes a poem called Prometheus, where he addresses the, uh, the, the, the Titan himself. They all had this conception of him as this divine benefactor, as this uh, unjustly tortured hero who uh, broke through and uh, gave this incredible gift to man who we owe our, uh, our abilities to, who we owe our lives to, and yet uh, faces this awful torture. They all addressed him this way. And Byron writes of him, thy godlike crime was to be kind. Thy godlike crime was to be kind. I bring this up not just because be kind, those two words are our sign-off here every week on the Midnight Myth podcast, but if you remember the final episode of Peter Capaldi's Doctor, before he regenerated into Jodie Whittaker, he gave a speech to his future self. He gave a speech to his own regeneration, uh, sharing some wisdom, sharing some advice for how to be. If you, if you had the opportunity to regenerate, wouldn't you give yourself some advice for how to be in your next life? Without a doubt. And one of the things he says before he regenerates is, always try to be nice but never fail to be kind. So I think that these lines resonate deeply with the doctor and especially with Jodie Whittaker's doctor. So once again, we're seeing uh, the doctor being associated with a different kind of hero, being associated with someone who has to make this difficult choice, who does something so generous for mankind, uh, but that also requires them to deal with ungodly punishment. Uh, and I think that's what we're seeing the doctor do as well in giving away the Siberium, in giving all of these people the chance to see the universe and still having to face the consequences day after day after day after millennia. You know, thank you for sharing all that about Prometheus and how it relates in particular to the character, the doctor. A few things that kind of kind of stuck out to me in your point there. Um, thing number one, Prometheus gets his liver eaten and then what happens? It regenerates. Yeah, yeah. There's a regenerative aspect to Prometheus, just as there's a regenerative, regenerative? Is yeah, that? yeah, totally. Yeah, aspect to the doctor. When the doctor dies, the doctor regenerates. And yes, there's a connection to Prometheus giving the gift of the gods to the mortals and hence being punished. As well as we learn in this season, not in this episode, that it was the doctor who came from some sort of a portal to Gallifrey, whose own biology gave the gift of regeneration to the Gallifreyans, who would then become the Time Lords. So that there is a connection between both 
Prometheus to the doctor, to Lord Byron, to Mary Shelley, to the lone Cyberman who Mary Shelley calls this modern Prometheus. Absolutely. Yeah. Wonderful. You know, the Prometheus myth is one that is not only um, a myth designed to explain, hey, how does this phenomenon such as fire exist? Where did we learn? It is fundamentally explaining that. But there's also a deep psychoanalytical connection in that it tells us that there's an element of paternalistic punishment implicit in sharing the things that you shouldn't share. It warns being kind comes at a cost. And it comes out of the cost of having your liver removed because the gods are mighty and powerful and to be feared. And what do we see amongst the lone Cybermen who is brags about cutting the throats of his own human children, that he is mighty and powerful. And what is he trying to take back? He's trying to take back the Siberium, a gift that was given to a man. He's trying to take back the metaphorical fire that was given by the gods. So I think, yeah, Prometheus is a connection from Frankenstein to the doctor, to Lord Byron, to this episode, and to the themes of regeneration within this season. So I think it's very cool. That's awesome. Thank you for tying that all up. That really helps to sort of codify all of that stuff that was floating around in my head. Yeah, definitely. Well, that's why it's a conversation and a partnership. If you'll permit, you know, one thing that I think is Promethean adjacent, you know, one of the aspects about Doctor Who that I mentioned in the beginning of this pod that I love so much is that episodes can be within themselves a contained genre. You can have Doctor Who be many different things in the course of a season and not just one thing. It's one of the great beauties and gifts of this show The Doctor can change, the TARDIS can change, the themes can change, and the genres themselves can change. And I would call this to be a a horror episode. Yeah, for sure. It seems very much to be playing in that. And I would also say that the myth of Prometheus is very much an early horror story. Like, be careful what you give away, because if it angers the gods, your liver will get eaten daily. It's like the original torture porn of stories. (laughs) It totally is, yeah. And this got my kind of gears thinking, What? how should we view horror within the context of the Doctor Who? Which got me to go backwards to ask a fundamental question like, you know, what's up with horror? What's up with the horror genre? And it's a hard topic to pin down, and there's a lot of literature out there. But I did find a very interesting article published from the British Psychological Society on their online blog. It's called The Lore of Horror, The Lore of Horror, pardon me, an article by Dr. Christian Jarrett. And in it, it kind of explains and sums up very succinctly some of the main psychological theories of horror. The question therein why do we like horror? What about this genre seems so appealing, seems so everlasting? In many ways, it is probably the oldest genre of literature. As soon as people started writing down stories, they had some aspect of horror, some aspect of animals that were trying to devour you, monsters, humanoid creatures that could drink blood, and witches, and almost every one of the ancient narratives that have survived today have some element of horror in them, as well as 
It's a fairly universal experience for a bunch of kids at a campfire sitting around at night roasting s'mores. What do they do? They tell ghost stories. In fact, the entire reason we have this episode of Doctor Who correlates to a bunch of people in our actual history saying, hey, I wonder if we can tell the ultimate horror story, the best ghost story. So why is it alluring? What makes it alluring? Well, there are a few potential theories, and I don't have time in to get through all of them. One of them was that horror correlates to early evolutionary processes, and that the um, earliest predators and the earliest causes of premature death in a prehistoric caveman hunter-gatherer human beings were snakes and felines, great cats that hunted humans and feasted on humans' flesh, and snakes who that would bite and you would die from poison. Hence, there became a general uh, assumption that snakes and cats were evil and bad and wrong, and that is one of the explanations for why so much horror has these monsters. Monsters that usually have really big fangs, sometimes they look like reptiles, sometimes they have really vicious claws, Another example is, look, think of Freddy Krueger with his clawed hand. Yeah, sure, sure. That that is very much reminiscent of like a great cat and the claws that they have. And that's one of the easiest um, to understand examples. However, it does fall a little short to explaining the allure of the genre as a whole. After all, if I were to ask you, what's the most popular horror monster in pop culture? What would you say, Laurel? I mean, most popular is probably zombies or vampires, right? And yeah, actually, it's funny that you should say that. So a bunch of psychologists did a study and number one, most popular, well thought of, first thought of monster was Dracula, a vampire. Next were zombies and it goes down on the list. Other things like Freddy Krueger and Jason were on the list. But number one was Dracula. Who has his origins on this same night. And number two were zombies. So this kind of leaves the evolutionary theory that they're just manifestations of hunter-gatherer predators remaining in kind of encoded in our collective consciousness because after all, you know, we were never hunted by Dracula. So it makes it a little harder to explain the allure if the most terrifying monsters are undead humans feasting on our flesh what then would they be? So psychoanalysis says that it is a representation of id impulses and that the id impulses are manifesting within these horror characters. And in fact, it satiates our id impulses by watching them. So the id being the unconscious part of our brain, the one that is more primeval, the one that's instinctual, the one that seeks pleasure and avoids pain, etc., um, but most of you know common psychologists don't really credit that as a very valid explanation. Well, that's interesting to me because psychoanalysis is really born uh, in tandem around the same time as Gothic horror uh, and the literature that's coming out of uh, the later Romantics, especially with their relationship to horror. So there is definitely this undercurrent of. Uh, sexuality, of repressed uh, psychology, of characters plumbing the depths of their own darkness. Uh, I think that is 
paramount to a whole lot of what was coming out of the horror genre during the 19th century was this understanding that monstrosity could be born within, that we could access uh, deep darkness, darknesses within ourselves. And that's a lot like the lycanthropy or commonly known as the werewolf. Yeah, absolutely. The idea that there is a monster within us, which is also easily explained through psychoanalysis. Um, I want to read a quote here from the article that I read. And it's suggesting that there are certain cognitive triggers that happen when we interact with certain characters that are almost like us. It cites a study that um, tried to understand great religious prophets as they're written in religious texts. And it compares those prophets to horror movies, not in the respect that, you know, Jason from Friday the 13th or Lestat, Lestat from Interview with the Vampire are like Jesus, but that there are some sort of similar characteristics. Let me read the quote. But digging deeper, these monsters may also endure culturally because they press the right cognitive buttons. For example, just as Pascal Boyer, cited in Barrett 2000, has argued that many religious entities thrive by being minimally counterintuitive. That is, they fill nearly all the criteria for a given category, but violate that category in one particularly memorable attention-grabbing fashion. A random example would be Moses and the bush that's in flames but doesn't burn. A similar account could explain the enduring appeal of horror monsters. In this vein, vampires fit the human category in most respects, except they are undead. Ghosts are similar, person-like, but have no body. End quote. Fascinating. I love that. The idea is that the monsters are just human enough and just not human enough. They're just as enough comfortable so that we can understand them. We recognize them as a pattern. They are familiar to us, but then different enough that we are scared. Yeah, it's the uncanny. Yeah. Oh, great. We will get to that too, because I have a great quote from Freud. But anyway. Oh, nice. Let me back up here. And yes, there is an uncanniness. So what do we see applying this human-like, adjacent-like theory of what makes a monster really scary to this episode? What do we see? One, we see the appearance of two actual ghosts still unexplained at the end of the episode that Graham interacts with that bring him a plate of food. And the doctor saying, I guess ghosts don't exist until they do. Unless they do. (laughs) So we see an element that it's just human-like enough, but not quite. And then we see the lone Cyberman himself. We can see his hands. We can see his jaw. We can see that there are human characteristics to it. We can hear a voice that's non-robotic. And this is what makes him a particularly terrifying villain, is that there's a human quality to it. There's a moment where Mary Shelley, as we talked earlier, tries to appeal to the humanity of this, this monster who turns out to be anything but human. It's just human enough and just not human enough in order for it to actually be scary. We combine that with a home, something we all have, something we've all lived in, 
Most of us have lived in a house at some point, a house which is familiar. Houses are pretty easy to get around. It's not hard going from one end of a house to another end of a house until it is. Yeah, when you walk downstairs, you usually end up downstairs, unless you're in this house, when you might end up upstairs again. So just familiar enough, hitting the right cognitive buttons of a house, but changing it ever so slightly is what makes it so terrifying. And what I like about this episode is how it employs the um, the strategies of horror within the episode to make it a very scary episode, but still feels so Doctor Who. Yeah, and it continues to blend the uh, the hyper logical, the very sci fi uh, aspect of Doctor Who with the surreal and the dreamlike. Uh, they finally figure out the answer to the riddle, the reason that the house is going haywire, uh, because Doctor Polidori is a sleepwalker because he starts walking through walls because as someone asleep, he can't see the illusion, and that's what tips the doctor the doctor off to realize they're dealing with a perception filter. So it helps to blow things apart by accessing the dream world. From a study done by Hank Davis and Andrea Javer at the University of Gulliff, I probably said that wrong. Well done, I love it. Uh, yeah, I'm sorry. Quote, successful horror films are those that do the best job of tapping into our involved cognitive machinery. They exploit topics and images we already fear. Yeah. End quote. Yeah. And I love how this episode does just that. Um, yeah, I think it really employs those well. We mentioned the uncanny. The uncanny is a um, it is a phrase that comes from Sigmund Freud, and it's about encountering something that is so close to comfort and familiarity, but is deficient in certain ways that we have to focus on its deficiency. We talk about this in storytelling a lot as the uncanny, uncanny valley. This idea that, your, for example, your special effects graphics can look so real that you focus on the one thing that's not real. A and good, that can be really disturbing to look at, yeah. A good example of this is in robotics. When we see a robot that looks very human-like, however, it lacks the subtleties of human movement, it lacks the recognition. We get a feeling of being off-put. We get a feeling of unwell. We know it's close to human, but not quite, and it makes us uncomfortable. This is another example of why we fear clowns. They look like human beings. They act like human beings. You can see a face, but their face is really completely covered. Can you really trust what's underneath that mask? Used to great effect by Stephen King and It. Yeah. And Freud explains the uncanny as something that's, quote, either when infantile complexes, which have been repressed, are once more revived by some impression, or when primitive beliefs, which have been surmounted, seem once more to be confirmed. Unpacking what that uncanny quote means about the experience of the uncanny and applying to this episode, we see a few things. One, we have a literal infant in it. We have a child and that we have this monster who actually kills the caretaker of the child and then sees the child and decides to let it live, right? So we have this sort of infantile mix right then and there. And there's also some of these like primal beliefs that we see within it. 
we see Lord Byron suggest that they are actually dead and in hell, a manifestation of the death anxiety. He also apologizes for bringing evil into the house because he brought in a skeleton, a very sort of superstitious idea. We see all of these characters playing this sort of flirtiness, like they all kind of want to bang each other. Yeah. It's kind of, it's part of it. Like there's definitely some psychosexualness and there's some, some attractiveness happening amongst all of these characters. Some are literally pursuing others for a relationship as we see. Um, and then at the end of the day, there is this, you know, primal desire amongst the lone Cybermen to destroy everything and to get power at all costs without any consideration. And once we see that primal, um, this manifested in the Cybermen, we know what genuine huge threat all of our heroes are in. Yeah, absolutely. Anyway, I think it does a really good job this episode in playing the techniques of horror and understanding why we like horror. I think really, um, I think that they did their research in writing this episode and how to employ those techniques so successfully. Absolutely. And it taps into something really deep about our relationship to the genre. Uh, you know, in a scary time when a, a volcano has erupted across the world and everything is dark and the summer that's supposed to be beautiful is in fact rainy and cloudy and you have to stay inside and you don't know if the world is actually ending, what do you do? You huddle up with your friends and you challenge each other to tell ghost stories because on some level, the acknowledgement of horror, uh, aside from what's actually happening outside, makes these characters feel a little bit safe. And I think that's kind of amazing. Um, Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, as we talk about genres, a lot of times I feel horror gets left at the wayside as being a quote-unquote less serious. And part of the reason for that is most people do outgrow their love of horror. It's a well-documented phenomenon that usually your early teenage years – to your early adult years or the years you're more likely to consume in particular film, horror films, and a lot of people outgrow them. But what we see here in this episode is a sort of universal language of horror that connects to us still, that resonates with us still, and that I think I do believe there's a lot to the genre and that we should take it more seriously. And I think there's a lot of great voices in horror doing that, including this episode of Doctor Who, and other great horror, you know, filmmakers such as Jordan Peele out and Ari there, Aster, Ari yeah. Aster, that are just making these amazing horror movies. After all, Arthur Conan Doyle famously said, "Quote: When there is no imagination, there is no horror." End quote. Oh, I love that. I love that quote. Just uh, here at as we wrap up this podcast, credit where credit is due. Um, Chris Chibnall is the showrunner, but this episode was written by Maxine Alderton who cut her teeth as a writer for a famous British soap opera uh, and really just came out of the gate with an incredible episode here. You can tell that she knows these historical figures and also that she's interested in evolving uh, the characters that we know and love here on Doctor Who. And I think she did a beautiful job of bringing the historical uh, context to life while also evolving the story. I'm just kind of blown away by her and can't wait to see what she does next. Yeah, to me, this was the standout episode of, of the season. There were a lot of really good moments. I love the new actor playing the master, and I loved that character. I've always loved the villain, the master. Maybe we'll do a case study on the master. Ooh, interesting. I would love to talk more about the Cybermen as villains and how the season finale employed the Cybermen and added to the Cybermen mythology 
by giving the Cybermen a kind of like grandiosity and narcissism that you just don't see in the characters, the villains before then, which I think is really interesting. Ultimately, I feel like this is one of the least successful Doctor Who seasons. Um, I didn't love it as much as I've loved the ones before it. That being said, the gems in it, I thought were like shining, brilliant gems in this episode I thought was brilliant from start to finish. Yeah, honestly, this season had some really, really high highs. And this one for me, I'll go back and watch it again and again. I loved it so, so much. And it makes me excited to see the future. Definitely. And I have nothing but, you know, positive thoughts and wishing that the show continues to be as awesome as it's been. And as I remind myself to do my best to be nice, but to never fail to be kind. Be kind. Walk on to Byronic Avenue. 